Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Joining us today is Salesforce Director of Global Mobility, Laura Young. She oversees all inbound and outbound immigration employment operations for Salesforce, which includes managing U.S. and global immigration as a whole for the company. But today, she sits down with EIG's Justin Parsons and Hiba Amber to speak about what she has seen and learned volunteering at the border in Dilly, Texas. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. So the part that I'm actually really interested in is your decision-making process, like Mm -hmm. to step out of your comfort zone, Mm -hmm. leave San Francisco Mm -hmm. and go to Dilly, Texas for a week. I just knew I had to do it. Really? Yeah. So the fact that I was able to get this opportunity, it was to me more of an honor that I was able to go there. And I just jumped on it and booked my tickets and just never looked back. Did you notice a difference between day one and day seven in terms of how you felt at the end of the day? I felt more um, comfortable, um, more prepared going into these interviews. Day one obviously was very chaotic. I spent a lot of time with um, every client, which I felt every minute was worth it. But uh, physically, emotionally, though, day one, exhausting. And day five, I was able to manage it better, if that makes any sense. You're talking with these women and children Maybe if you can describe um, what you were doing in terms of preparing them and what the process is when when individuals come into the country. I just remember that I could interview these women, trying to understand their stories and see if they would qualify for an asylum case, prep them for their interviews, or do admin work. We had um, maybe like two-hour training, and it was like a two-hour training of Asylum Law 101. The next day when we got to the facility, it's basically applying two hours of training of asylum one-on-one, like apply whatever you learned the night before um, on that day. And it was chaotic because everyone's really busy. And so you have to be really proactive and you start having your own clients. It was um, this mother and daughter, uh, 16-year-old daughter, Norma and Candy. That story resonated with me very heavily because it's my first client and also I have a 16 year old niece that's very close to me they they basically uh was trying to get away from El Salvador because they're being threatened by MS-13 now El Salvador is one of the poorest countries in the world and people here also tell us so much of the exodus across the U.S. border has to do with violence 60,000 Salvadorans double the police force, are gang members in a country with the highest murder rate in the world for young people under the age of 19. Norma, the 16-year-old girl, her aunt was stabbed by one of the gang members, her her boyfriend, I think, at the time, and they were all living together. She witnessed the stabbing. She herself was also being pursued by the gang members that followed her to school. So there was definitely like direct threats all the time. So they fled El Salvador and they went to Mexico where they were continuing being pursued by the perpetrators. So they lived in Mexico for a while, got a humanitarian visa and was able to get out of Mexico. Um, But when they crossed the border, they got split from their, the father and the son. And so the mother and Norma, Candid and Norma, were detained. You can feel the, 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 the fear that they had about going back, right? And the fact that the whole family basically picked up and fled. 
How did you balance the need to ask the female detainee very personal questions about some of the more traumatic experiences that she may have lived through in order to help her tell her story with not wanting to upset Mm -hmm. someone by forcing them to like recount at what could potentially be like sexual trauma? Yeah, that was really hard. Um, There was this one woman, it wasn't really like anything that was like trauma in that particular case. But I remember there's a woman who fled. Basically, she didn't think that her daughter was being threatened after she fled the country, El Salvador. I remember I was able to contact her daughter while she was on a break. And I learned that her daughter is now being threatened by the same perpetrators. And finding that part, that piece, um, and having to tell her that was very difficult for me. But I knew I had to tell her because that actually would support her case, right? Because now there is a direct family-based threat that would really strengthen her case. And so I remember I had to tell the translator, like, look, you know, she's going to appear for her interview very soon. And I just literally found out from her daughter that, you know, the same perpetrator is now after her. How do we, can you gently let her know, but... You know, in a way where, so I don't know, I, God bless that translator. She did a really good job, but she did have to, unfortunately, let her know. And I just remember just seeing her reaction, how she just like fell apart. It was a mom who came in and she had a two and a half year old on her shoulder, basically um, in a position where a child would be asleep. And I didn't really notice anything at first because I thought that she was carrying a child that was asleep in her arms. And then Justin checked that particular detainee's notes in their case system and saw that there had been a very lengthy and detailed note about the medical condition of the child. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, he, 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 he called my attention to it and starts reading to me what the previous attorney who had met with this particular woman had written about the condition of her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. So after hearing Justin read the notes... I was like shocked because the two and a half year old was so sick and could not keep anything down Mm -hmm. after Justin read the note that the two and a half year old girl was not asleep in her mother's arms. She was just lethargic and laying there Mm -hmm. in her mother's arms. So we immediately stopped the interview and then Justin and I stepped out and Justin started talking to the guard about, you need to take this child to the medic. Mm And um, I think I, I I think we said something along the lines of like if if this if the, if the child doesn't get medical attention like there's gonna be a lawsuit on your hands mm-hmm. so um, I think that got the the guards attention at that point but yeah it's 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 unfortunate that like you have to kind of resort to those measures sometimes yeah after you prep these women if you could just describe the next process and then what happens from there yes. in terms of you know going before an asylum officer. And then what happens if it's a yes or a no? They have a hard time explaining why they want to leave their country. All they can tell you is they're scared to go back. So it's your job as an interviewer to help them get into the details by asking, um, why are you afraid to report to the police? A lot of them is because the police don't really help. They work with the gang members or something like that, right? Basically, after you interview them and you prep them, they go and get interviewed by the officer. 
they either get a negative CFI, which is like the critical fear interview or positive. Most of them will end up getting negatives because it's just getting harder and harder these days to um, get a positive. And what I've learned when I was there was that my understanding is that a lot of these officers are also like contractors. So these are not officers that are experienced or understand the you know, aside the, the law, right? Yeah. So they, they're not really given these women the due process, like the fair chance of having them tell their stories. So these women basically go in and they're forced to answer yes or no. And um, so the interview can last for just like, you know, 15 minutes to an hour and then they get dismissed. Once they get dismissed, they wait for a couple of days or maybe a week to see the result. When it comes to negative, they can appeal for the case. Then we have staff attorneys on site who can then go to quote-unquote courthouse, which is another trailer, essentially, and appear in front of a judge. When I was out there, the judge that uh, was there is basically, I believe, was a lady that hasn't really granted um, any asylum case for like 10 years. And um, our volunteer attorneys were very frustrated because they weren't even able to speak on behalf of their clients. Um, and every day the rule just change. One day you're able to bring your laptop in, the next day you can't bring your laptop or like you can't even take notes, you can't speak to your clients. So it's sort of like frustrating for volunteers. Like what are we doing there if we can't even really help out these clients? Do you think hearing the individual stories changed how you felt about the asylum issue and other issues with respect to immigration policy and the border. And the reason I asked that question is, do you think it's different? Because you're instead of theoretically hearing about something, you have someone sitting in front of you telling you her story? It is different. I mean, like, how can you not want to help someone that's telling you their story right in front of you? It's easier, it's easier for people to make that determination as if it's like black and white. But when you have someone that is pleading their case right in front of you, all of those parameters just kind of like, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And I know that's not the best, and to some people that's not the best solution. Like people say like, you can't help everyone in the world. Well, you know what? That's the kind of world that I want. You know, I, well, I don't want, uh, for me, it's like my kind of world that I want is like, I want to be a global citizen. I, I don't really care. I want to help people that are in need. This is Immigration Nerds. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week. Yeah, so we were driving on this dirt road for probably like 10 minutes before we realized that like we were lost. We are lost on a dirt road in Dilly, Texas. Um, we had made several turns and I had like this like fear that like I was going to get stuck on this dirt road with Hibba in the middle of nowhere. We have no access to navigation because we're not allowed to bring our phones. And like, Which with- is the worst way to go. And we followed a law student who it turns out had no idea where she was going. So now we are trying to figure our way back out. With no with no food and we were gonna have to like find our way through like the uh, the farm fields and whatnot. Shit, was it? It wasn't that, was it? Oh no, I think we just It was a shock to his system. It was a lot of Texas in a week. Justin saw a very, very large cow and freaked out. (laughs) I thought it was an elephant.